There is no children's church this morning. There will be no children's church for the month of December. For the last month of the year, we will be a family-integrated church. I would remind you that out in the multi-purpose room, the remainder of the service can be heard. If it becomes too difficult for you to remain in here, please feel free to walk out when you feel that way and just know that you have a place to go. Before we come to the Word of God this morning, let us go before the God of the Word. Father, we are gathered here this morning expecting to be fed. And we have that expectation because of who you are, because you are faithful. You are a faithful father to all of your children. Father, I ask on my behalf that you would strengthen my voice, sustain it. I ask on all our behalfs that you would give us soft hearts, hearts that would allow the seed of your word to take root, and I pray that you would send your spirit to cause growth and produce fruit. Again, we pray on behalf of Pastor Monty and Debbie that you would be with them, that you would grant them physical strength, emotional strength, that you would grant them wisdom. We look forward to when we will see them next. In Jesus' name, we ask for these things. Amen. For my last couple of sermons, I have preached on what may be called hard sayings of Christ. The sermons I have preached have been sobering, to say the least. And although I make no apologies for that, I'm aware of the need for balance. I'm conscious of the fact that Not only do we need to be challenged at times, but comforted. And that's what I desire to do this morning. I would like to encourage you as you seek to be and to do all that Christ has commanded you. And in order for me to do so, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Our text this morning is verses 7 through 11. But, so that we might get a sense of the context, I'll read verses 1 through 12. Verse 1 begins, Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For, in the way you judge you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, 
and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. If you are taking note this morning, the outline of my sermon is, number one, a stressed direction. Number two, a stirring motivation. Number three, a simple explanation. Number four, some stimulating questions. And number five, a strong conclusion. Those are the five headings my sermon will fall under. But before I begin tackling them, I want to briefly explain how this morning's text fits into the Sermon on the Mount. I want to do so because it seemingly comes out of left field. Our text seems very disconnected from the context. One moment we are being told not to judge others and not to give what is holy to dogs. The next, we are being told to pray. What's the connection? Was Christ one of those incoherent preachers we've all heard before? To answer these questions, we need to review what Christ has said up to this point. And even before that, it needs to be said for any who may, who may not know, the Sermon on the Mount was directed to the disciples. In it, Jesus laid down the characteristics and conduct of all who will enter the kingdom of of heaven. His purpose for doing so was so that the disciples could test themselves to see if they were truly in the faith. That being said, let's review the sermon. In the introduction, commonly called the Beatitudes, Christ made it crystal clear that the blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Those are all of the characteristics all true disciples have. Now, in the body of the sermon, Christ made it equally clear that true disciples also have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. They obey the spirit of the law and not just its letter. That is to say, not only do they not murder, but they do not hate. Not only do they not commit adultery, but they do not lust. Not only do they love their neighbors, but they love their enemies as well. 
Furthermore, true disciples do not practice their righteousness before men to be noticed by them. They do not live for that which is temporal, but for that which is eternal. True disciples are not anxious. Rather, they seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness, knowing that God has promised to supply all their needs. They also do not hypocritically judge others. Instead, they first deal with their own sins and then graciously help others to do the same. Now, after hearing all that, the disciples' hearts probably fainted within them. I have to be and do all that? Lord, there's no way. Perhaps you have felt like that. I know I often do. And the Lord knew that we would. He anticipated our despair at such a high standard. Thus, this morning's text. At once, Christ reminds us that the things which are ordinarily impossible to men can be made possible to them by God. He directs us to pray for the supplies of grace we need to be and do all that he commands us, and he promises we will have them. That's how our text connects to the context. It's an encouragement for the discouragement every true disciple inevitably feels at this point in the sermon. With that understood, we're now ready to come to the first heading, which is a stressed direction. Look at verse 7. There are few verses more sweet than this one. When the Christian humbly asks, How will I ever live up to the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus answers, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. How simple is that? How encouraging is that? Are we struggling with obeying any command in Scripture, whether negative or positive? The solution is to pray. Prayer is God's appointed channel for obtaining supplies of grace, grace to obey his precepts. Having said that, it's important you understand prayer is not merely a sweet suggestion, rather it's a stressed direction. If we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, we are directed to pray. And we are directed to do so not once, not twice, but three times. Because of this fact, A.W. Pink said, prayerlessness is not to be looked upon as an innocent infirmity, but as a sin of the deepest dye, which is to be penitently confessed. Ask, seek, knock. If anyone is wondering why Christ so stressed this direction, the answer is, because he knew divine assistance is imperative if we are ever to meet the divine requirements. He knew that in order for us to live Christian lives that are at all successful, we need to live lives of supplication. Spiritually speaking, success and supplication go hand in hand. Now, Before moving on to the next heading, there is something you must know about this stress direction. You must know 
that not only are we directed to pray, but we are directed to persistently pray. We know this because the tense of the verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are all in the present tense. Verse 7 literally says, keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and it will be opened to you. In prayer, we are to be like Jacob when he wrestled with God and said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Another reason we know that we are to persistently pray is because of the verbs themselves. Have you ever considered that Jesus could have just said, pray three times? As my sermon title says. But he did not say that, did he? Instead, he used words which, when combined, evoke a picture of persistence in the mind. What comes to my mind is the persistence of a child. Oftentimes, a child will ask for his mother. And if she does not immediately answer him, he will begin seeking her, as well as asking. To be sure, the asking never stops, does it, moms? If the child's mother is behind a closed door, eventually he will, he will begin knocking. Mommy, are you in there? Sometimes he'll even introduce himself as if the mother didn't know who it was that was knocking. Needless to say, children are persistent, and that is what Christ is directing us to be. He is instructing us to ask, and if that doesn't work, to seek, and to even go as far as knocking. I love what Pink wrote on the clause, knock and it will be open to you. He wrote, the thought suggested by this clause is that grace is not to become at easily. It is as though the earnest asker and diligent seeker is now confronted by a closed door. Even so, says Christ, be not discouraged and dismayed. Continue on your quest. Knock. What a thought. Sometimes God closes doors not to say no, but to get us to knock. He wants us to be persistent. Although we may teach our children they are only allowed to ask for something once and not to keep on asking, we are allowed to keep on asking. In fact, we are commanded to. Persistent prayer is a Christian duty. At this point, a person may honestly be asking himself, why would God have us pray persistently before granting a request rather than having us pray once for something and then granting it immediately? If you are asking yourself that, here are a few answers. First, God would have us pray persistently to develop our patience. We are so impatient, aren't we? What we want, we want now. We don't want to wait one second. And our Father knows that about us. And so he delays in order to sanctify us. By the way, when Christ commands us to be persistent in prayer, he is not commanding us to be impatient. Don't think that we're to whine to God until we get what we want. What we're to do is earnestly make our requests known to him all the while being content, all the while knowing that he will answer our requests when and how he sees fit. 
That was the first reason. Second, God would have us pray persistently to develop our humility. This is a truth we sometimes sing about. Perhaps you remember the words of, I asked the Lord that I might grow. If you don't, don't worry, let me read them for us. They go like this. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he would answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all my fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayest find thy all in me. Struggling with sin humbles us. Struggling in general humbles us. And that is why the Lord oftentimes does not grant our requests immediately. That is why he so often makes us stand at the door knocking. But we can be sure, as the song points out, that when the Lord tarries, it's to our good. He may even be answering our prayer by tearing. That's the second reason God would have us pray persistently. The third is to develop our desires. To develop our desires. Oftentimes, when we don't get what we want immediately, our desire for that thing grows. We want it more over time. So God would have us petition him for extended periods of time to increase our desire for what is prayed for. By doing so, he also increases our appreciation for when he answers. The Puritan Richard Sibbs said, If the things of God did not cost us sighs, tears, weepings, lamentations, watchings, strivings, earnest longings, and many prayers... We would think them easy to be got at our, at our pleasure and so despise, contemn, or let them lightly pass as they came. What lightly comes, lightly goes. But what we work hard for, we highly prize. Those are just a few reasons for why God would have us pray persistently. I hope you notice that all the reasons are for our good. It's to develop us. So much for the stress direction. We come now to a stirring motivation. 
Look again at verse 7. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Three times the Lord promises that we will get what we prayed for. Could Christ have given us a greater motivation to pray? One man wrote, You need divine power to subdue your raging lusts. You need divine quickening to animate your feeble graces. You need divine wisdom to solve your perplexities. You need divine ointment for your wounds. So address yourself to your Father which is in heaven. Spread before him your need. Acquaint him with the longings of your soul. Beg him to relieve your wants, and you will not supplicate him in vain. Isn't that encouraging? We will not supplicate him in vain. Now, it needs to be said, few texts have been more grossly perverted than this one. Many have regarded it as a sort of blank check which anybody can fill in just as he pleases, no matter what his state of soul or manner of walk may be. You need to know our text is not that. Christ here is not saying, ask for anything, seek for anything, knock for anything, and you will get what you ask, seek, and knock for. Rather, Jesus is saying, supplicate the Father for the supplies of grace you need to obey my sermon, and they'll be granted. We have to remember this morning's text and how it fits into the Sermon on the Mount and why it was Christ said these words. The sense of verse 7 is, ask for the enablement to do all that I have commanded you and it will be given to you. Seek for the help you need to have a surpassing righteousness and you will find it. Knock for what is required of you and it will be opened to you. In light of this, I think some of us may be tempted to think less of Christ's threefold promise. But you really shouldn't. It's a good thing our text isn't a blank check. I say that because all too often we ask God for what would be hurtful to us. And if he gave us whatever we asked for, we would often be hurting. Listen, if God gave us whatever we asked for, we would be wise never to pray again. We are not wise enough to be given everything we ask for. I think this fact is often proven true by the experience of those people who we consider lucky uh, who win the lottery. For example, a man by the name of Billy Bob Harold Jr. won $31 million in 1997. Harold used the money to purchase a ranch, several homes and cars for himself and his family. His spending, however, and lending spiraled out of control, and not long after, he divorced. Just 20 months after winning, Harold killed himself with a shotgun. Here's another example. A woman called Kaylee Rogers, who won $3 million in 2003. 16-year-old Rogers, one of England's youngest winners, spent the money on fancy cars Gifts, lavish vacations, and plastic surgery. An ex-boyfriend got her hooked on cocaine and she attempted suicide twice. One more example. 
Keith Goh, who won about $18 million in 2005. He used the money to buy racehorses and divorced his wife. It wasn't long after that his life started falling apart. He was conned by a girlfriend, developed cirrhosis of the liver from alcoholism, and died in 2010. He told the newspaper, My life was brilliant, but the lottery ruined everything. My dreams turned to dust. What's the point of having money when it sends you to bed crying? Again, we see we are not wise enough to be given everything we ask for. The fact that verse 7 doesn't teach us that God is a genie and we are Aladdin is a good thing. A very good thing. God promises to meet our needs, both physical and spiritual, not our greeds. Everything that we need is available to us, and all we must do is pray. Maybe you're thinking, Christian, there's just one problem. I have prayed for my needs, but God didn't meet them. I've prayed for this grace and that grace. I've prayed for this sin and that sin and nothing. If that's your case, I would submit to you that perhaps the problem might be a lack of persistence. Oftentimes, the petitions of Christians aren't answered because Christians don't keep on asking as Christ directed them to. Too often times, Christians pray for something like grace to deal with a besetting sin once, maybe twice, and then they wonder why God didn't answer their prayers. Listen, a, a lack of persistence betrays a lack of sincerity. To quote Arthur Pink again, there is an asking which is mere formality and accomplishes nothing. If the supplicant himself is scarcely able to remember an hour afterwards that which he petitioned for, how can he expect to receive answers? If an experienced mother knows the difference between a child's asking for the mere sake of asking and making a request out of the sense of urgent need, how infinitely less can we oppose upon the omniscient one. So also there is a seeking which is merely mechanical and obtains not. Half-heartedness and slothfulness are not likely to be successful. We must be persistent in our prayers. We must, as Tertullian would say, with a holy conspiracy, besiege heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones wisely counseled, the importance of this element of persistence cannot be exaggerated. You find it not only in biblical teaching, but also in the lives of all the saints. The most fatal thing in the Christian life is to be content with passing desires. If you really want to be men of God, if you really want to know him and walk with him and experience those boundless blessings which he has to offer to us, we must persist in asking him for them day by day. We must persist in asking. We must persist in praying day by day. That is the condition of Christ's promise. It's a persistent prayer that he answers. If ever we find ourselves in a state where our hearts are cold toward the things of God, if ever we find ourselves in a state of spiritual declension, where we are suffering loss after loss spiritually, 
where there is no growth in godliness, I would submit to you that it is because we are failing here. We are failing to ask, seek, and knock. To add a voice to what I'm saying, James Montgomery Boyce said, I believe that these texts contain the explanation of the weakness and irrelevance of much Christian living and of much contemporary Christianity. Every now and then, he says, a minister is asked by some Christian, why is it that I cannot seem to find victory in the Christian life? Why does the Bible seem difficult to understand? Why do I still seem in bondage to some besetting sin? Why am I such a poor witness? Why do the high principles of Christian conduct have such little effect on my job and on the affairs of my family? The answer is, he says, is that you do not ask God for these blessings. You do not have because you do not ask. With that, let's move on to the third heading, a simple explanation. Verse 8 says, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Upon first reading that, a person may well say, that's just not true. Not everyone gets what they ask for. And of course, such a person would be right if verse 8 literally meant that everyone without exception gets what they ask for. But it does not mean that. You should know that verse 8 is proverbial. The sense of it is, that if you go out into the world, you will generally find that those who keep on asking receive, that those who keep on seeking find, and that those who keep on knocking have doors opened to them. In other words, it's generally true that persistent people get what they want. And this is a point Jesus often made. For an example, turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 It is the parallel passage to our passage. I want to draw your attention to verses 5 through 10. Luke chapter 11 verse 5 says, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished... One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation." Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me, the door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, 
ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. It's generally true that persistent people get what they want. Turn to Luke chapter 18 for one more example. Again, Jesus often made this point about persistence. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8 say, Now he, of course that is Christ, was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by her continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Again and again, Christ made this proverbial point. Persistent people get what they want. And that's the sense of verse 8. It's a simple but strong explanation for why we ought to be importunate for why we ought, we ought to be persistent in prayer. We are to keep on asking, seeking, and knocking because as it goes for persistent people in the world, it will go for persistent people in prayer. Continuing on, we come to some stimulating questions. Look at verses 9 and 10. They say, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? It seems to me like these questions are for doubters. A person may say, I wouldn't dare be persistent with God. He, he's more likely to punish me for being importunate than to, per uh, to permit me my petitions. Now to people who would reason thus, Christ says, consider what you yourselves do as parents. When your children persistently ask you for a loaf of bread, you do not punish them with stones, do you? Or when your children ask for a fish, you do not somehow trick them with a snake, do you? And of course, the answer is no, and the implication is, neither will God. And that's actually what Christ goes on to say. Look at verse 11, which is the strong conclusion. It says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? That is an argument from lesser to greater. If sinful men and women give good gifts in response to their children's requests for needs, then God the Father can be counted on to do so as well. 
although the parent-child relationship is the most naturally selfish relationship among human beings, and although we are more likely to sacrifice for our children even to the point of giving our own lives for them than for any other persons in the world, we must understand that the greatest human parental love cannot compare with God's. Our Heavenly Father is in every way infinitely greater than all earthly fathers. In His knowledge, He is infinitely greater. In His wisdom, He is infinitely greater. In His kindness, in His wealth, in His liberality, He is infinitely greater. And because of this, we may ask Him for all of our needs with absolute certainty of obtaining our requests. Having said all that, have you ever considered that when we doubt God will give us what we need or that he will give to us grudgingly that we dishonor him? When we do so, we are actually declaring that he is not so fatherly as he says he is. That he is not so loving, not so giving. That he at best is like us in the way we give to our children and at worst is less than us. The Father, forgive us. That couldn't be further from the truth. Our God is not like us. He is not like the gods men make who are really larger than life images of themselves. For example, John MacArthur in his commentary on Matthew shares the story of Aurora, the goddess of dawn, who fell in love with Tithonus, a mortal youth. When Zeus, the king of gods, promised to grant her any gift she chose for her lover, she asked that Tithonus might live forever. But she had forgotten to ask that he also remain forever young. Therefore, when Zeus granted the request, Tithonus was doomed to an eternity of perpetually aging. MacArthur writes, such are the capricious ways of the gods men make. The good news is such are not the ways of the only true God, the God no human hands have made. Our Heavenly Father is completely other. He hides no ill will. He delights in giving good gifts to his children. If anyone were to ask how we can be sure, the answer is because he withheld not his son. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Of course, that is to say, he most certainly will. In closing, I trust you have been encouraged. Yes, the standard for disciples set in the Sermon on the Mount and in other portions of Scripture is high, but we have help. All we have to do is keep on asking for it, keep on seeking for it, keep on knocking for it, and grace will be given to us. A Puritan Matthew Henry wrote, Those that would be rich in grace must betake themselves to the poor trade of begging, and they shall find it a thriving trade. Let's pray. Father, we are somewhat bewildered 
that you would hear us. And not just that you are willing to hear, but that you even command us to come to you with our needs. It is to our shame that you are more willing to hear our prayers than we are to pray. Forgive us for that. Help us to realize the resources we have available to us in Christ. Help us never to seek to live up to the Sermon on the Mount in our own strength, to seek to live the Christian life in our own strength. We are not meant to. May we always seek to do all that you have commanded in the strength your Spirit provides to us. Father, we are oftentimes lazy. We are not diligent, fervent, persistent. Help us to be. Even help us with that. We want to be what you have commanded us to be. And we thank you that your commands are to our good, that they are for us, for our happiness. In Jesus' name I pray.